For the past six weeks, I've been preaching sermons about individual characters in Scripture. We've talked about the Apostle Peter, the high priest Aaron, King Saul, the prophet Jonah, Tamar, Bathsheba, and today we're talking about Miriam, the sister of Moses. One of Miriam's best moments happens at the Red Sea because on the coast of that sea, she begins a tradition that will continue for centuries beyond her life. She just contributes a couple of lines in Scripture, but what she does is taken up by generation after generation following her. In other words, Miriam leaves a legacy, a message. So this morning, I want you to hear the gospel according to Miriam. Over 3,000 years ago, Miriam grew up as a slave in Egypt along every, alongside every other Jew. Israel had originally moved to Egypt during a famine, and the first pharaoh that the Israelites knew uh, loved their forefather Joseph. The Jews lived in the area called Goshen, and the Egyptians were their neighbors. And at the time, there was little to no animosity between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But then a new pharaoh came into power, and he hated the Jews. Every time another baby was born to them, he saw a threat to his empire. He was totally detached, totally unhinged from reality. He believed that every little baby boy born to the Israelites was a future soldier for Israel, a future rebel against him. Without any warning, Pharaoh and all of his armies went into Goshen and enslaved the Jews. Now, Miriam's family knew the depths of Pharaoh's depravity because her youngest brother Moses was born in the midst of a new wicked policy from Pharaoh. He made it law that every midwife who was supposed to help mothers give birth to their children were to kill the babies if they were boys. So Miriam and her mother decide to save Moses, and they strategically place him near where the daughter of Pharaoh bathed each day. We read in the beginning of Exodus, his mother, that's Moses and Miriam's mother, placed him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And just as they plan, Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses, feels sorry for him, actually feels so sorry for him that she adopts him, takes him into the Egyptian palace. Now, we don't know much about the relationship between Miriam and Moses over the course of years, but she does find out that Moses has moved off to Midian. And remember, she's a slave. She has no freedom to travel, no freedom to communicate with Moses. So she doesn't really know what's going on with Moses's life. That is until Moses returns with his brother Aaron and he has had an encounter with the living God out in the wilderness. Miriam notices that something has happened out there that he just can't put into words. And the bottom line is that Moses believes the time has come for Israel to leave Egypt. Each and every day, maybe each and every week, Miriam watches Moses and Aaron go take trips to the Egyptian palace to demand freedom for the Jews. Now, I'm sure at some point she wondered if they're going to make it out alive. I mean, each day they're telling Pharaoh, give up all of your slaves or else God will send a plague. Eventually, Moses and Aaron come back with good news. After 10 plagues that have struck the land of Egypt, 
Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says, look, I just need y'all to get out of here. Up, leave my people, you and all your Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you have requested. I'm sick of all these plagues. Get out of my territory. The Israelites don't need to be told twice. They pack up everything, they run, and they make it all the way to the Red Sea, and they feel very free. That is, until they look back and see Pharaoh's army out in the distance chasing them. You see, Pharaoh and his officials regret giving up this free labor force, so they pack up all their chariots and chase them down. Now Moses and Miriam can see all of the people panicking. Now we're just going to die out here in the desert? He's just going to massacre us after giving us the impression we're free? Moses calms them and reassures them, be still and know that God is God. So Moses sticks his staff out over the sea, which they saw as an obstacle to their travel, and it parts. Think about that for a second. Picture it in your mind. This body of water parts as if it were alive, as if it were taking commands from God and obeying him. Miriam and the Israelites don't ask any questions. They just run into the sea. They take off onto the dry ground, go all the way across, and come up the other side. And then they look back, and they realize that the Egyptians are pursuing them. The Egyptians haven't stopped on the other side of the Red Sea. They're following them in. And remember, these are their slave masters. These are their oppressors who are not going to stop until they kill all of these Israelites. And that's when Moses for the second time, sticks out his staff over the waters. And the last thing that Pharaoh and his army ever saw was a bunch of free Israelites. The split waters come crashing over him, drown his entire army, and the Israelites see this. They witness what God has done. Women and children weep. The men beat their chests and cheer. The exodus has happened. That happens in chapter 14, and then this happens in chapter 15. Miriam the prophet took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed with their tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. I don't know if you noticed this, But Miriam does not need a command to worship God. God doesn't appear to her and say, please worship me. That's not what happens. Because she and her people, all of her nation, who have been slaves for centuries, all of a sudden are free. And it's all because of God. The only response that makes sense when God does this kind of thing is to worship him. She says, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. God doesn't need to tell her to do that. She sees what God has done. She grabs the nearest tambourine, starts to dance, and sings. And she's not the last woman to do so. Because a century or two later, the Israelites find themselves again oppressed by the Canaanites. This time, it's not the Egyptians. They, they fought under their general Joshua for the promised land. But the, the Israelites have just gotten into this downward spiral where they keep, they keep just doing whatever is evil in God's eyes. And so God hands them over to a new enemy. And this time, their enemy is Sisera. 
Sisera was a Gentile army commander. He defeated them in battle, and so he gains rule over the Israelites for two decades. In so many ways at this time, the people are leaderless. They don't have a Moses, they don't have an Aaron, they don't have a Joshua, and they don't have a Miriam. That, in, that is until God steps in and decides Deborah will be a prophet to lead Israel. Now, just so it's clear in your mind, Deborah is the prophet of God, Barak is an Israelite commander, and they're going up against Sisera and King Jabin. Now, Deborah has a word for Barak, this soldier. She says, you're going to go down to the Kishon River, and you're going to do that today. She doesn't really give him much of a heads heads up, much of a notice. She says, go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands, and God isn't just going to follow behind you. He's not just going to be with you. He's already gone ahead of you. It's been 20 years of oppression, Barak, and today's the day to fight. And so hearing Deborah's word, Barak gets his troops and goes down to the river, and all we're told is that the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword. And we're told that while his soldiers are being killed, Sisera gets off of his chariot and flees on foot. He saves himself. He runs, he finds a village that he thought was allied with him, and there's this woman in the village named Jael who goes out to meet Sisera, and she says to him, come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So Sisera thinks he's being taken care of, He enters her home, she covers him with a blanket, he is exhausted, and he goes to sleep. And I'm not kidding, this happens in the Bible. That woman, Jael, picks up a tent peg and a hammer and drove it through his head. That happens in the Bible, and we are told, on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. What happened to this oppressor was God's way of freeing Israel from oppression. Again, he did it in Egypt, and now he's doing it in the land. And that happens in Judges chapter 4, and this happens in Judges chapter 5. Their first reaction is to sing a song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people offer themselves, praise the Lord, hear this, you kings, listen, you rulers, I, even I, this is Deborah talking, I will sing to the Lord, I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. Villagers in Israel wouldn't fight, Deborah says, they held back until I arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. She also makes sure to include jail in the song. She says, most blessed of women be jail." For she struck Sisera, she crushed his head. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. Here we have another woman who's taking up song to worship God because she sees the obvious, her people have been freed. She can't help but sing. It doesn't matter that it was 20 years instead of centuries in slavery. God freed Israel, so Deborah sings. Did God have to appear and say, it is incumbent upon you to worship me? Did God say, it would really help my self-esteem if you praised me? No, no, no. Deborah knows the only response that makes sense is to worship him. He has delivered their enemy into her hands. And so she busts out in song. She's a new Miriam, singing in response to what God has done. And Miriam's legacy continues after this. Because a century later, another Israelite woman was oppressed. Her name was 
Hannah. This time it wasn't an Egyptian pharaoh or a Gentile military leader like Sisera. It was the other wife of Hannah's husband. I know that sounds strange, but in those days, wealthier men in Israel married more than one woman. Hannah was the second wife, and she had no children. Peninnah was the first wife, and she had plural sons and daughters. And we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Hannah's rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Now, if anyone in this room has struggled with infertility and all you want is just a baby, you know Hannah's heart here. We're told that she's so miserable because of this other woman that she can't eat. So she decides to pray to God. She goes to the tabernacle, the house of the Lord, which is in Shiloh, and we read that Hannah, in her deep anguish, prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She's, she's so heartbroken, she makes a vow saying, Lord, if you will only look on your servant's misery, remember me. Don't forget your servant, but give her a son. And then, as soon as you do that, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. After years of torture, after what I assume are years of prayer, she goes home, and in the course of time, she becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son, and she names him Samuel. Now, if you think that story of this woman who's infertile and then has a baby, has a nice tidy bow, it actually doesn't. Because as soon as he is weaned, she takes him to the priest Eli and gives him into the ministry of the Lord for the rest of his life. She doesn't get to experience his toddler years, his teenager years. That might have actually been a good thing. But she gives, she gives his whole life directly back to God. Even if you had a child exactly when you wanted to, imagine handing him over to leave your house, to leave your sight, and be permanently given to God. That is not easy. That happens in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and then this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over all my enemies. I delight in your deliverance, God. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. This woman experiences infertility. She is given a son, which is an answer to her prayer. She gives that son right back to God. And she says, I've just got to sing about this. My heart rejoices. She doesn't need an order or an instruction to worship God. She just does it in response to what God has done. Because Hannah is a new Deborah, a new mother in Israel, praising God. That song that began at the Red Sea, written by Miriam, is continued by Deborah and extended by Hannah, and the song isn't over just yet. Because a thousand years after Hannah's life, there's this young teenager in Nazareth who gets engaged, and her Hebrew name was Miriam. Her people found themselves under the occupation of the Roman Empire. They tried to keep their life as normal as it could be. They went to synagogue. They celebrated Passover. They tried to endure. And Miriam 
And like other women in her town, get engaged. They're going to get married and have families. So she gets engaged to a man named Joseph. And during their engagement, this happens. God sends an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. The angel goes to Miriam and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And we read at the beginning of Luke that Miriam was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what this kind of greeting might be. But the angel says to Miriam, Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then Miriam Miriam asks a very understandable question. How will this be since I do not know man? I'm a virgin. Can you elaborate on this plan, Gabriel? The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then Miriam responds with that famous line, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to thy word. That happens in Luke chapter 1, and then this happens at the end of the chapter. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. The Virgin Mary is a new Miriam, a new Deborah, and a new Hannah. Just like Miriam getting to see her people free Mary gets to see freedom come through Jesus Christ. She's going to watch Jesus crush the head of the serpent Satan, just like Deborah saw Jael crush the head of the serpent Sisera, just like Miriam got to see the serpent Pharaoh crush at the Red Sea. Mary's going to have a son born by divine intervention, just like Hannah. And this time it's not going to be infertility that's the issue. It's going to be virginity that God overcomes. You see, all these women are matriarchs in Israel, and when they see their people free, they sing. They can't help it. It started at the Red Sea, it went to the Kishon River, up to Shiloh, and then to Nazareth, and it continues today. Let's just ask ourselves this question, do we need God to command us to worship? Not if we see what God has done. Just think about that for a second. God made the heavens and the earth from nothing. He sustains every angel and every atom and every ant by the power of his word. He makes all of us in his image. He chose Abraham to bless all of the nations. He saved the Israelites from slavery. Do we need God to tell us to worship him? Tell me the answer. No. No. God sees husbands. He sees husbands and wives who can't get pregnant, and he helps them have kids. He brings down oppressors and tyrants. He feeds the hungry and gives shelter to the homeless. He sends his angels to protect us. Do we need God to tell us to worship? No. Miriam's legacy of worship continues after the Bible. There's this man named Ephraim who is a Syrian who lived 17 centuries ago, and he wrote psalms for the church. He was basically the ancient version of a choir director, and he chose to write hymns specifically for women at his church to sing. I was reading about this man, Ephraim, this week, and I just thought it was too good of timing to ignore. This is what his friend wrote about Ephraim. 
the blessed Ephraim saw women who were silent in praise at his church and in his wisdom decided it was right that they must sing out. Then his friend writes this, As Moses gave timbrels to young girls, so did Ephraim compose hymns for these women. As Ephraim stood among these sisters, it was his delight to stir these women up into songs of praise. And here's my favorite line that he writes, And the church resounded with the lovely sound of those women's voices. Amen. The church continues to resound with Miriam's song. This is the gospel according to Miriam. That God is so good that the only reaction to him that makes sense is worship. God works so powerfully for us that anything less than praise and adoration is unnatural. God loves us so deeply that anything less than poetry and prayer would be beneath his glory. That's the good news, according to Miriam. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you did through and in Miriam at the coast of the Red Sea. Father, we're in awe of you of everything you've ever done. Not just stories from a long time ago that we see recorded in Scripture, but in our lives throughout church history, you're at work doing more than we could ever fathom and being so much better than we could ever imagine. Father, we thank you for being this kind of God you're so in charge, you're so sovereign that we can see these patterns play throughout history and they don't stop with the Bible, they continue because you're still at work by your spirit today. Father, I'm thinking of the incredible woman, Julian of Norwich, who wrote a line that has stuck with me for so long and I pray that this would be a blessing to anyone in this room. Seven centuries ago, she said that Jesus spoke to her and said, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Father, we thank you for Miriam's song continuing with Deborah, with Hannah, with Mary, with Ephraim, with Julian, and even that song continues today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.